In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. As I read through this morning's gospel lesson, I was reminded of a line from Charles Wesley's hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. It's the hymn that we came into this morning. The line goes like this, Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. It's a great comfort to know that Jesus is all compassion, isn't it? To know that he is indeed pure, unbounded love. To know that Jesus Christ is the one whose property, as we say every Sunday, is always to have mercy. And that's because we human beings are sinners. We are weak, we are gullible, we are easily taken in, and what's more, we are rebellious in our hearts. And let's just go ahead and admit it, if Christ were not all compassion, if he were not pure, unbounded love, as Wesley said, well, we'd be lost forever. We'd be subject to the judgment of a holy and righteous God. But the cross and the Lord's death on it is the eternal reminder to us that Jesus is indeed kind, he is merciful, he is compassionate, and what's more, he understands. That is to say, Jesus understands our weaknesses, he understands our frailties, he understands the challenges we face on a daily basis. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4 of that epistle wrote, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us go with confidence and boldness before the throne of grace that we might find help and comfort in time of need. It is because Christ understands, it is because he has gone through the whole gamut of the human experience that the author of Hebrews says he is mighty to save. And I think there are a few places in all of Scripture where this fact is more apparent than right here in today's gospel lesson in this account of Jesus' own temptation by Satan in the wilderness. The dictionary defines temptation as the act or state of being enticed, enticed especially toward evil. It reminds me of that scene from Homer's Odyssey in which Odysseus encounters the sirens. Do you remember that story from mythology? The story goes that Odysseus was sailing home following the Trojan Wars, and he had to pass by this island that was inhabited by these beautiful, enchanting creatures known as the sirens, creatures whose song was so melodious, so hypnotic, that when sailors heard it, they couldn't resist it. They would inevitably steer their vessels off course toward the rocky shoals and the sound of the music, ultimately wrecking their vessels and meeting their deaths. Odysseus, of course, managed to escape this tragic fate, but only because he had been warned in advance, had lashed himself to the mast, and had ordered his crew members to plug their ears with beeswax so that they could not hear the bewitching sound. Well, that's the way the New Testament describes temptation. Temptation is a siren song 
That if we allow ourselves to listen to it, if we allow ourselves to be taken in, it will cause us to veer off course and make a shipwreck of our lives. And that is why this morning's gospel lesson and this account of Jesus' own temptation and victory over Satan in the wilderness is so important. It's because you and I are engaged in the same struggle as Jesus. It is a struggle, the apostle Paul says, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this dark age. It is a struggle, he says, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places. And this struggle against temptation can at times be intense. And yet Jesus Christ, our captain in the faith, has gone before us. He has fought this battle. He has won the victory. And he therefore sets us an example of how we too can be victorious in times of temptation. And what's more, he reminds us that we have a great, compassionate high priest to whom we can flee in times of trouble. There are four things about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness that I want us to note carefully this morning. Four things that I think can help us whenever we face temptation. First, I want us to understand the source of temptation. Where does temptation originate? Where does it really come from? Second, I want us to understand the nature of temptation. What is temptation at its root? Third, I want us to consider the timing of temptation. At which points in our lives are we most vulnerable to it? And fourth, I want us to understand the resources that are at our disposal to overcome temptation when it comes into our lives. So first, the source of temptation. Jesus in Luke chapter 17 said to his disciples, temptations are bound to come. That is to say, they are unavoidable. Jesus was a realist. But he said, woe to the one by whom they come. Historically, the church has identified three sources of temptation. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And each one of these is unique. What do we mean when we say that the world is a source of temptation? Well, we don't mean the created order. When we use that word world, we don't necessarily mean the creation. We don't mean the planet. We don't mean nature, which God blessed and called good. Instead, when the New Testament speaks of the world, what it really means are those standards, those ideas, those philosophies that characterize the fallen cre creation around us or the culture around us, what some have called worldliness. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans when he said... Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul was talking about the standards, the philosophies, the ideas that characterize our culture. What one person has described as the great isms, materialism, the idea that it's all about the stuff. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. That a person's real success is determined by the amount of money that they have made or the amount of possessions that they have. Secularism. The idea that this world is all there is. You only go around once, so grab all the gusto you can get. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow 
you die, and that's it. Relativism. The idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth, only individual versions of it. You've got your version of the truth, and I've got my version of the truth, and so on and so forth. And finally, pragmatism. The idea that everything is to be judged on the basis of its utilitarian value, and the ends justify the means. However unseemly or questionable those means Maybe if you think about it, these are the ideas, these are the philosophies, these are the values that characterize Western culture and characterize American life. And they are constantly calling out to us and saying, this is the way, follow us, this is the way to frame your life. But Jesus is very clear, this worldliness, these worldly philosophies lead nowhere but to death. As to materialism, Jesus asks, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? As to secularism, the idea that this world is all there is, Jesus says, you know intrinsically that that is not true. You know that there is a day of judgment, and we were created to live for eternity, and we'll either live for eternity with God, or we will live eternally separated from Him. As to relativism, this philosophy that says there is no such thing as absolute truth, Jesus says, oh, contraire. In fact, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And as to pragmatism, this idea that the ends justify the means, Jesus said that too is a lie. He says, we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, and that means that the means are just as important as the ends. And you know, let's face it, these are the things that our world values. These are the things that, as I said, call out to us like a siren song. Oh, yes, the world is a source of manifold temptations. But it's not just the world. There's also the problem of the flesh. Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. When the apostle talks about the flesh, here again he means something very specific. He's not talking about our bodies. He's not talking about skin and bones per se. When Paul talks about the flesh, what he really means are those fleshly sinful desires that reside within us, within our own fallen hearts that sometimes bubble to the surface. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul describes some of these fleshly desires. He said, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. You see, those are not temptations that come to us from outside. Those are not temptations that come to us from the world. Those are temptations that come from within our own hearts. St. Augustine, in his book Confessions, tells the story of one particular sin that he had committed when he was a youth and that troubled him well into old age. It seems that Augustine and a group of friends had robbed a farmer's fruit orchard. In fact, they went in and picked his pear trees clean. 
Now, when you stop and think about some of the things that Augustine did in his youth, and let me tell you something, he lived a wild youth. And you think about some of the things that he records in confessions, this seems like a rather minor infraction. I mean, stealing fruit? But Augustine said, of all the sins, this is the one that troubled him the most. And he explains why. He said, it was because I didn't steal the fruit because I was hungry. Because he said, I wasn't. And he said, I didn't steal the fruit because I liked pears, because I didn't. He said, no, I stole the fruit for one reason only, for the sheer joy that I received from doing what I knew was wrong. I want you to think about that for a moment. I did it for the sheer joy that I received in doing what I knew was wrong. Well, folks, that's not the world. That's the flesh. And that's why Jesus said to his disciples, it is not what goes into a man that is the problem. No, he says, it's what comes out of a man. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are the things that defile a person. So yes, we do have those temptations that come to us from outside, from the world, but we also have those temptations that bubble up from our own wicked hearts. But then, of course, there are those temptations that come to us from the devil. Now, he comes last in the list simply because he is the one who stands behind all the others. He is the great puppet master. He is the one who is responsible for all the corruption and wickedness in the world today. He is the one the New Testament describes as the ruler over this world, and he is the one who calls out to our fleshly desires. The Apostle Peter describes him as our great adversary, a lion who prowls about seeking someone to devour. Now, I want to be very clear this morning. Very few of us have actually ever been tempted by the devil. Oh, we've been tempted by the world. We've certainly been tempted by the flesh, but very few of us have ever actually been tempted by the devil himself, and for a simple reason. The devil is a creature. Now, he's a powerful creature. He is a wily opponent, but he is nevertheless a creature. He is not equal with God, and whereas God is omnipresent and can be everywhere at once, that is not true of the devil. He can only be at one place at one time. And so very few of us have probably ever been tempted by him. Instead, the devil works through a legion of demonic forces in order to fulfill his will. Just read C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. It's doubtful if any of us, if we had ever gone against the devil himself, could ever possibly be victorious. He is just so powerful and so seasoned. Today's gospel lesson reminds us that there is one who did go toe-to-toe -to -toe against the deceiver himself, who took the full onslaught of the devil's temptation and was victorious, and that one is Jesus Christ. And that's why you and I can have encouragement and hope in times of difficulty. So we have the sources of temptation. They are the world, they are the flesh, they are the devil. But we also need to understand the nature of temptation. Really, what is temptation at its root? The Gospels tell us that the devil came at Jesus on three separate occasions and presented Jesus with three separate challenges. Now, those challenges aren't recorded for us here in Mark's abbreviated version of the story, but they are told to us in Matthew and Luke. 
The first challenge was for Jesus to exercise his divinity by turning stones into bread. The second challenge was for Jesus to exercise his divinity and throw himself down off the temple and allow the angels to catch him in their arms, a public miracle. And the third challenge that was presented to Jesus by the devil was the challenge to bow down and worship the devil and in return receive all the kingdoms of the world. Now, each of these challenges, as I said, was unique. But what I want you to notice is that in every instance, while the challenge was unique, the temptation was exactly the same all three times. It was a temptation to doubt God and to doubt God's word. Here's how Matthew puts it in his version of the story. We read, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. A little further on we read, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written he will command his angels concerning you. And still further on, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Three separate challenges, and yet in each instance, the operative word is if. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. If, if, if. Now, that was an interesting way for the devil to put it. Because you'll notice how today's gospel lesson begins. Just prior to the temptation, Jesus had been baptized in the Jordan River, and at that time, God had declared him to be just that, the Son of God. We're told that as he came up out of the water, the heavens were torn open, the Spirit descended, and a voice from heaven thundered, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And yet the devil comes along and says, if you are the son of God, what's the devil doing? The devil's trying to just plant the seed of doubt in Jesus' mind. A seed of doubt and bring Jesus to the point of distrust. It was not a new tactic. The devil had been employing this for a long time and with great success. Think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The man and the woman are placed in this beautiful garden paradise. And they are told they can eat of any tree in the garden except for one, the tree in the center of the garden, the knowledge of good and evil tree. God said, if you eat of that tree, you will die. So they understood the parameters. But the serpent comes along and says what? Well, the serpent comes along with a simple question, a question that is designed to do one thing and one thing only. Plant the seed of doubt in the woman's mind. The devil comes and he says, did God really say, don't eat of that tree? Translate, Eve, are you sure that you heard him correctly? Are you sure that's what he really meant? Folks, I want you to understand something. That is the nature of all temptation. Whether your temptation is coming from the world, from the flesh, or from the devil, that temptation is designed to make you distrust God, to doubt his word. Some of you, just looking at the gray hair out there this morning, I know, remember the old comedian Flip Wilson. 
Remember Flip Wilson and his line, the devil made me do it. I want you to understand, that's not really the way the devil operates. He doesn't make believers do anything. What the devil does is he comes along and he plants the seed of doubt in our minds. Are you sure that's what God meant? Are you sure that's the right way to go? And that seed of doubt, if you and I water it with our fleshly desires, it will germinate, it will grow, and it will ultimately produce the poison fruit of unbelief. That's what the devil wants to do. And so God comes and God says to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. And the devil comes along and he whispers in our ears, are you sure? Are you sure, especially in the midst of loss and grief, are you sure you can take God at his word? See, just that seed of doubt. The Lord says to us, there is no sin that you have ever committed that the cross of Christ is not capable of dealing with. For Jesus' death was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And yet the devil comes along and he whispers in your ear, oh yes, I know that's what he said, but are you sure that God can forgive that sin? You know which one I'm talking about. That one was a doozy. God says, the only proper place for sexual relations is within holy matrimony. It's within that context that there will be blessing, there will be flourishing, there is great freedom. And the devil comes along and whispers in our ears, are you sure that's true? Doesn't that sound a little old-fashioned, a little outdated, a little puritanical or Victorian? See, that's how the devil operates, my friends, and he's very successful at it. That is the nature of all temptation. And that is why we are encouraged to trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord and his word with all our might and lean not on our own understanding. So we have the source of temptation. Temptations come to us from the world, the flesh, the devil. We have the nature of temptation. The enemy wants to plant just that seed of doubt in our minds that we cannot trust God. Here's the third thing we need to understand, the timing of temptation. At which point in our lives are we most vulnerable to temptation? Well, you'll notice that in the case of Jesus, the temptation came just after he had won a great spiritual victory. It was a high point in Jesus' life. It was his baptism. How many of you saw the coronation of King Charles III back in May and watched it on television? It was a glorious spectacle. It was pomp and ceremony, pageantry the way that only the British can do it. And it was the official announcement to the nation that Charles was the new sovereign. Now I say it was the official announcement, why? Well, because in a very real sense, Charles was already the king before the coronation ceremony. He automatically became the king the moment his mother died. The cry went up, the queen is dead, long live the king. This was just the official announcement. Well, there is a sense in which Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River was his coronation day. He was God the Son from all eternity. 
But this was the official announcement to the nation that he was God's son. And like the coronation of Charles, this was a ceremony that was accompanied by great pomp and ceremony. We read, and when he came out of the water, immediately the heavens were torn open. The spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Glory. And look at the very next verse. And immediately he was driven into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. The baptism of Jesus was a high point in the Lord's life and ministry, like the coronation was a high point in the life of Charles III. But in the case of Jesus, it was also the opportunity for the enemy to attack. You know, we often assume that the enemy is only going to come at us when we're down and out, when we're discouraged, when we are depressed, at those low points in our lives. And don't get me wrong, he can come in those moments. But it's been my experience that oftentimes when you're depressed or discouraged or going through a tough patch, that you cling to the Lord like never before. You press in like a vine to the bark of a tree. You're closer to the Lord then. No, it's when everything is going your way. It's when everything is wonderful. It's when the sea is no longer choppy. It's as calm as glass. It's when we won some great spiritual victory. We've broken through in prayer. Or perhaps we've come to understand a deep doctrine that we never understood before. And we think to ourselves, ah, now I get it. Oh, I have arrived. And that's when we let our guard down. And let me tell you, folks, that is when we are most vulnerable. Because we are relying on ourselves, and that is when the enemy will come and he will assault you. Not always when you're down and out, but oftentimes when everything is going your way. This is why the New Testament says, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. So we have the source of temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have the nature of temptation. The enemy wants to plant the seed of doubt in your mind. The timing of the temptation, he can come at any moment, but oftentimes he comes when you let your guard down and everything is just going great. But that brings us to the fourth thing this morning that we need to note, and in many ways, the most important, the most pressing. All right, temptations are going to come. Jesus made that very clear. We're not going to be able to avoid them. But how do we overcome temptation. How do we resist this siren song that would cause us to veer off course and make a shipwreck of our lives? Well, you'll notice that when Jesus was tempted on all three occasions, he responded in precisely the same way. He responded by quoting Scripture. Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. When the devil said, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread, Jesus said, it is written. Man does not live by bread alone. When the enemy said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple, Jesus said, it is written, quoting from Deuteronomy, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. When the enemy came and said, if you are the son of God, well, then go ahead and prove it. You deserve all the kingdoms of the earth. Bow down to me. Jesus responded, it is written. 
you shall not worship anybody but God alone, and him only shall you serve. Over and over again, Jesus responded to the blows of the enemy with Scripture. Scripture was Jesus' great weapon against the enemy. And brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something today. The Scriptures are our great weapon against the enemy. Paul describes it as the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians. Remember that whole panoply of arms that he talks about? He talks about putting on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, taking up the shield of the faith, having your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. But then finally he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's the only piece of armor that is used not only for defense, but for offense, to strike back at the enemy and defeat him. But you know, a sword is only as good as the hand that wields it. It does not matter how balanced the blade is, how sharp the blade is. If you don't know how to handle a sword, it will be of no good to you. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you know how to handle the sword of the Spirit? Do you know the Scriptures? Have you read, marked, learned, inwardly digested them? When the enemy comes, you are able to unsheath that sword and use it. Because, brothers and sisters, if you cannot, you are vulnerable. And yet, even if you do know the Scriptures, even if you can rightly handle the Word of God, still that's not enough. Because the enemy is a biblical scholar too. <laughs> he knows the scriptures and he knows how to fence. And that's why when temptation comes into our life, and it will, from whatever the source, the best thing you and I can do, so as not to be drawn off course, the best thing you and I can do in times of temptation is flee to Jesus. Flee to him. He is all compassion. He is pure, unbounded love. He has been tempted in every way just as you have been tempted. And he is mighty to save. In times of temptation, flee to Christ. Martin Luther put it best in the hymn that we're going to sing on the way out today. He said, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. Temptations are bound to come. But folks, we are not alone. Flee to Jesus, for he is mighty to save. Amen.